This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. I'm really excited this week to be reunited with Ken White. Some of you likely were listeners to my KCRW podcast with Ken, All the President's Lawyers. Ken's a criminal defense attorney in Los Angeles, and for three years, Ken and I had a show that followed the legal travails of Donald Trump and his associates every week. We folded that show down in November as I was preparing to leave KCRW and launch this podcast and launch the Very Serious Newsletter. And a number of times over the last few months, there have been stories that have come across my desk that Sarah Faye and I say, you know, it would have been really great to be able to discuss this this week with Ken, things like the Sarah Palin defamation case against the New York Times. Uh, And so obviously we've had a lot of other things on our plate, but it's really exciting to have Ken back here this week to talk about some of that stuff and some of the broad themes, what we've learned about the American legal system over the last few months. Uh, So some of that, what we're going to discuss has to do with Donald Trump. A lot of it really isn't about Donald Trump. Uh, One of the nice things about Trump being not president anymore, uh, as you don't have to talk about him every week, uh, but we will talk about him some this week. Uh, in any case, hi, Ken. So great to be back here with you. Josh, thanks for having me on the show. Good to see you again. Great to see you. So uh, there are two big themes I want to discuss this week. One of them is really directly about Donald Trump. Uh, the other has to do with defamation law and is only sort of incidentally about Donald Trump. But let's start with the Trump story, which has to do with the Manhattan District Attorney who had been overseeing a criminal investigation into whether Trump had caused his companies to make false statements to banks, inflating the claimed value of assets in order to obtain financing. Uh, And one thing that you and I talked a lot about over the years is how hard it is to prove crimes like that. that. You'd have to show that Trump himself caused the statement to be made, that he knew the statement was false. And as this investigation was ongoing, Manhattan got a new district attorney. There was an election. There's a new DA since the start of the year. Uh, Cyrus Vance is out. Alvin Bragg is in. And Bragg, when he came into office, he apparently was quite skeptical of the strength of this proposed case against Donald Trump, in part because it would have relied on testimony from convicted felon Michael Cohen. Uh, So you had these two high-profile lawyers who'd been brought in specially to the office to oversee the Trump case. uh, And then they resigned when Alvin Bragg declined to proceed toward an indictment, at least based on the evidence they had now. The idea was Basically, well, if we learn something new later, maybe we can indict. I guess that's true of anyone at any time. So I guess, first of all, how common is it for a change in management to lead to a big change in strategy on a politically prominent case like that? It's not unusual because a politically prominent case, and and this is probably the, the most politically prominent one you can imagine, is going to involve a huge investment of an office's time and resources and attention. Uh, it's really going to, to some extent, take over the agenda. And Bragg is someone with his own agenda. He, he's someone who wants to change the way criminal justice is administered in Manhattan. Uh, some of his ideas are controversial, but not really controversial outside uh, the criminal justice realm. And uh, I think he wants to focus on other things. The Trump case, if it's pursued as a criminal case against Donald Trump is going to be all-encompassing of the district attorney's time and attention and his ability to get agenda items done. So the, these two lawyers who resigned when Bragg made this decision not to proceed, Mark Pomerantz and Kerry Dunn, they're, they're both big shot guys who have been in private practice for a long time. Pomerantz is 70 years old. So I mean, a lot of the news coverage is basically like, oh, the line prosecutors are resigning because they don't like this decision from above. But this isn't the normal situation where you have some ADA who's 35, who's been there for a number of years, and it's like, 
screw this, I'm going to quit, I'm going to go into private practice. It was like these were the ringers who were brought in. So I, I guess I don't know what point there would have been for them to stick around if the office wasn't going to proceed with this. Well, exactly. Uh, this isn't, you know, the the civil servant who's been a civil servant for 20 years, uh, resigning in protest as a matter of principle. These are two heavy hitters uh, brought in specifically for this case. One of them is a former federal prosecutor who it's been reported wasn't even being paid uh, to do this work. And the other is a long-term higher up operative within the DA's office, uh, very experienced with the political end of things as well as the legal. And uh, yeah, I mean, if nothing is going to happen with this investigation that's big and splashy, then there's not a lot of incentive for them to stick around to be doing high-end supervisorial work on something that's not high-end. So, so there's a couple of questions you might have had if you were the DA. One is, is this worth all the time and resources that it's going to take? Is this a distraction from other core objectives of the office? But the other question is, is this case any good? Are you actually likely to secure a conviction if you bring this case? Uh, and so you have Bragg, who might be sitting there, you know, worried about we're going to bog down in this case. It's very hard to prove and we might lose it. But you also had Cy Vance, who I think as they were proceeding with this case, he has to have known that he could be the political hero who would bring this case, bring it toward indictment. I think he may have even hoped to bring the indictment before he left office. Donald Trump, as, as he is, was quite good at, at delaying this process, and they did not indict before Cy Vance left office. But it wouldn't have been Cy Vance's problem if the case had fallen apart. In fact, he could have brought the indictment and then left office, and then the case could have fallen apart under Alvin Bragg, and he could have basically been like, well, that was Alvin Bragg's fault. So it seems like there's problematic incentives on, on both sides here. I, you know, I, I tend toward the view that this case was quite weak, and it was a correct decision not to bring it. I don't know if that that's your view, but I one one of the things that I see looking at this is that Cy Vance had the opportunity to try to bring this case, and it really wouldn't have been his problem that the case was actually not any good. Well, Josh, I think the problem is that this case has been like uh, the Mueller investigation beforehand, the focus of so much wish casting, uh, the focus of so many people's hopes and dreams about finally this time we got him and not necessarily reality-based. So as you said at the top, uh, the types of crimes we're looking at here are very hard to prove. You're talking about uh, reporting and accounting decisions that typically someone like Donald Trump in an organization wouldn't be making personally and wouldn't be directing personally. And it's difficult to show that not only were they involved, but they understood that what they were doing was illegal. Uh, because when you're talking about reporting different numbers to different places, um, the truth is sometimes that's appropriate because sometimes the the different places are asking different questions. You're talking about different valuations, things like that. So here they were going to have to show that he knew uh, that what he was reporting was false or fraudulent. That's a really high burden. You add to that if they're relying on Michael Cohen, uh, who's a convicted felon, a convicted liar to Congress, and uh, whose rehabilitation tour that he's been on is perhaps not as convincing to prosecutors and juries as it is to podcast consumers. And he has a specific beef with Donald Trump. Absolutely. So in addition to being dishonest, you know, there's an obvious story to tell about why he would lie about Donald Trump to get ahead. Absolutely. And now DAs have a lot of experience using insiders to go against their bosses. And so they are adept 
at evaluating who is going to sell to a jury and who isn't and who they trust and who they don't. So if they don't like Michael Cohen, uh, ain't nobody likes Michael Cohen. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that's part of it. But it, it's clear from some of the news reporting, the New York Times has done really good reporting on this, that there were disagreements within the prosecutor's office about what an appropriate course of action was here. That you had Pomerantz and Dunn who very much wanted to proceed with this case. You also, before you had Alvin Bragg basically squashing it, you had a number of the actual career line prosecutors who didn't want to be involved with it back in the fall when it looked like Cy Vance was pushing toward that he that he wanted to bring this case. I assume if you're a career prosecutor in the DA's office, presumably you, you, you don't want to get sucked into some big high profile case that's going to fall apart and lose, right? That's true. Although, I mean, the DAs are, as a rule, more amenable to rolling the dice and taking their shot at a tough case than U.S. attorneys are. They're more likely to take a, a, a case that's closer to the line and take risk of losing. Uh, but still, when you're talking about a case that is going to be your entire life 24-7 for years, you don't want to just blow it on something that doesn't have a good chance of succeeding and something that's going to be hugely politically controversial, that's going to have people on Twitter posting where your kids' schools are and, and things like that, uh, that's just going to be crazy-making for your whole life. So that's, I think, the case as to the career prosecutors within the office. As to the DA himself, I think Bragg has things he wants to do with this job. And those things are along the lines of maybe we can think of different way of running prosecutions and, you know, maybe not jail so many poor people and, and so on and so forth. And it's hard to focus on multiple things at the same time. And he's under a lot of pressure regarding that. I mean, that's the sort of the top political controversy in New York City right now has to do with with crime and prosecutions and the idea that some of the prosecuting offices like in Manhattan and the Bronx are, are, are being too soft, more or less. Of course, anytime you try to change the political justice system default, which is, you know, as harsh as possible against everyone, you're going to be getting this huge pushback from all over the place. And so if he wants to accomplish anything here, he has to devote a lot of his time and resources to that. And if you go after Donald Trump or a member of Trump's family, then that's that's going to be your life. That's going to be everything for a while. So is anybody else going to prosecute Donald Trump? I mean, I feel like that was a theme for us for years on this show, that there was always some MSNBC theory of, you know, how they were getting Donald Trump this time. This seemed like the most live one in that, you know, there really was a, a district attorney who really was working on trying to bring a criminal charge against Trump. Now that looks like it's off the table. Does that mean that, you know, he doesn't have anything else to worry about, at least on the criminal side? Nothing else to worry about? No. Nothing else to panic about? Yes. So <laughs> I would say that there's still a chance. So one of them is in Georgia with the investigation over the infamous call where he uh, attempted to influence an election official in Georgia to uh, maybe change some numbers or find some more votes for him, things like that. That office has been investigating aggressively, and they may have the combination of a plausible theory and a political will to move forward with that. Then as to federal issues, the January 6th committee in Congress continues to overturn rocks and develop information that could bring up enough information for a case for the U.S. Attorney's Office to do something federally with obstruction of justice or some theory regarding January 6th. That, too, would take a significant act of political will by the Biden administration, and I'm not confident they would do it. But it's it's beyond the realm of 
MSNBC hopes and dreams and mere speculation. It's it's into the realm of possibility. The thing I wonder about both of those possible areas of vulnerability for Trump is that unlike this stuff about financial statements of his business, those are both getting close to stuff that has to do with criminalizing official political acts, which is something that the Supreme Court has looked very askance at over the last decade plus. There was this case about Bob McDonnell, who was the former governor of Virginia, um, who had been convicted basically for misusing his office to trade favors. And what the court basically said is, you know, the, you know, this is stuff that politicians do since the dawn of time. They trade things against things, and you're basically criminalizing politics when you make that illegal. This also, uh, the Bridgegate convictions got overturned with the same thing, that it, you know, it, it wasn't a crime to shut down the George Washington Bridge out of spite. Uh, that was the, a really dumb and bad political act, but it was a political act. That's part of what's made me skeptical about the idea that Trump could go down for those sorts of things. It really looks like it, you're, you're, you're looking at things that he did in politics, things that he really should not have done in politics. But it, it seems like something the courts would be pretty reluctant to touch as a criminal matter. Well, I, I think you're right that there's a trend in federal courts, at least, towards looking askance at criminalizing you know, classic political conduct. Uh, that leaves, I think, the Georgia action a little more open. Uh, I'm not sure about the makeup of Georgia appellate courts, but I think a lot of these prosecutors think, you know, hey, it may get overturned someday, but for now I'm going to get <laughs> the benefit of a conviction. So if I had to rate it, I would rate the Georgia case as more plausibly going criminal than the federal case. I think it's going to take a historically unusual amount of political will to go after him federally based on the January 6th. And, and I think it's unlikely, though not impossible. I think that because it's going to be so core political that it, people will perceive it as being something that is kind of politically destabilizing and has politically unpredictable consequences in elections and, and that type of thing. Certainly, it's something that the, the Republicans are going to fundraise over like mad. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be, I mean, it's inherently divisive, but it's going to be even more divisive. So I, I'm a little skeptical. Let's talk about defamation cases. There's been a lot of lying in recent years, um, a lot of accusations of lying, and a lot of litigation about lying and accusations of lying. Smartmatic and Dominion Voting Systems, two major vendors of voting equipment and services, have been suing the propagators of conspiracy theories about the 2020 election and their alleged role in stealing it. At least three women who accused Donald Trump of sexual misconduct have sued him for defamation when he accused them of lying about that. Conservative politicians, including former California Congressman Devin Nunes, have sued their critics in politics and in the press, saying that their comments about him were lies. Sarah Palin, frankly, had a pretty good point when she said the New York Times had no reason to suggest that she'd inspired Jared Lee Loeffner's shooting of Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, and she took them to court over that. I have to say, this litigation has mostly looked sort of unavailing. We haven't seen any judgments. We mostly haven't seen settlements, the main exception to that being former Covington Catholic High School student Nick Sandman, who got undisclosed settlements from several media organizations related to the completely unhinged commentary about a dispute he and his classmates got into on the National Mall. I would know we don't know the size of those settlements. We don't know whether they're large or not. Is this system working? Is, is defamation litigation achieving some sort of objective that it's supposed to? I mean, I, I certainly don't see, you know, direct instances of people being held accountable for lying about people. Well, I think that it depends on what you think the point of defamation litigation is. 
sometimes the process is the punishment. Or, you know, as the police say, you can beat the rap, but you can't beat the ride. In other words, you might not wind up convicted, but in the meantime, we're going to screw up your life with the process. Defamation litigation can be very similar in that even if you eventually prevail, it's hugely stressful and incomprehensibly expensive uh, to defend. And most Americans can't afford to defend it. The thing that troubles me is that I think we've really thoroughly transitioned into an era where defamation litigation is a way for plaintiffs to fundraise, to generate enthusiasm with their base, and uh, to conduct politics by other means. I think that's bad and destabilizing and generally does suppress speech. Because again, even if often these defendants are winning in the long term, uh, it's extremely expensive. Even if you think uh, I'm tough and I can take it. Most people find being a defendant litigation to be terribly, terribly stressful and, and life-altering. So that's bad. I think it's right in operating the way it's supposed to that these cases rarely result in any sort of verdict for the plaintiffs. It's supposed to be very hard to win a defamation case because of the way we value free speech and the way defamation law is set up. So when I see something like the Sarah Palin case, where I agree with you, the New York Times completely screwed up, and I think to their credit, they admitted it, I think this is probably the way it's supposed to operate, uh, with a federal court hearing the claims very carefully, ultimately giving Sarah Palin an uh, opportunity to go to trial, but eventually those claims losing because she didn't have enough proof. My question then is, what is defamation litigation for? Who are the sorts of plaintiffs who should be winning in cases like this? Is, is, is it just for truly private parties like Nick Sandman? I mean, I don't know if Nick Sandman would have won in, in any of these cases if he'd gone to trial. A lot of the statements about him were, were pretty irresponsible. And he, unlike Sarah Palin, was not a famous person when this started. But should someone famous like Sarah Palin, are there circumstances in which she ought to be able to sue a publication and win? I mean, is that is that what we're looking at with Dominion? Should Dominion voting systems, when someone makes up this egregious lie that is obviously false, that is damaging to Dominion's business. Is that the sort of situation where a public figure like Dominion, a major company, ought to be able to get some sort of judgment out of this? Yes. The state of the law is that uh, when you say something false about a public figure with actual malice, meaning knowing that it's false or with reckless disregard, ignoring evidence that it's, it's false, then they should be able to prevail. And I think that, for instance, Sarah Palin had a fair shot at proving that. She certainly thoroughly proved they got it wrong, that when they suggested that her political rhetoric somehow had an impact on Jared Loeffner, that was completely wrong. What she couldn't do was prove that the writer who wrote it and the editor who did the initial edit and published it knew it was wrong at the time or looked away from clear evidence that it was wrong. To the contrary, the evidence showed that as soon as someone said, hey, wait, are you guys sure about that? They looked into it, they figured it was wrong, and they withdrew it and apologized. So let's let's talk some specifically about the Sarah Palin case and the circumstances of that. This was an editorial that the New York Times ran in 2017 after uh, uh, the shooting. There, there was a gunman who shot at Republican congressmen who were practicing for a congressional baseball game, severely wounded Steve Scalise, who was then the majority whip. And the Times 
Times ran this kind of dumb staff. Edit- well, first of all, staff editorials are stupid in general. Nobody cares about them. This, this, I think one thing the Times should learn from this case is that staff editorials are, are more trouble than they're worth. Uh, the, the, we used to say in college, writing a staff editorial is like pissing in a dark suit. Gives you a nice warm feeling and nobody notices. So they, they ran this editorial basically about how all this irresponsible political rhetoric was causing violence and people needed to stop saying such irresponsible things. And one of the key examples they pointed to was the 2011 shooting of Gabby Giffords. Uh, Jared Lee Loeffner uh, shot her, uh, very seriously injured her. She did not end up dying, um, but she's, you know, to this day has, has uh, deficits related to that. And the Times said the link to political incitement was clear. And they point to this graphic put out by Sarah Pack, the political action committee uh, for Sarah Palin, uh, that it put crosshairs over various uh, congressional districts where they were trying to defeat members of Congress for reelection. Now, the Times incorrectly said that it put crosshairs over the candidates, which is not what the graphic had. It was, you know, it was, it was just on a map. But more importantly, there was no evidence that Jared Lee Loeffner had ever seen this graphic. Jared Lee Loeffner was insane. Uh, he had a longstanding obsession with uh, Gabby Giffords specifically uh, was upset about her uh, failing to give a satisfactory answer to a complete nonsense, insane question that he'd asked at some public event. Um, so the idea that Sarah Palin had somehow incited uh, this attack is false. And so you you say, you know, that we, we don't know that the Times or its employees acted with actual malice here. And I think people trip over the term actual malice because they think like, you know, were, were you trying to be mean to Sarah Palin? But basically, this was a truly incompetent action by the Times that they, you know, they reported a thing that wasn't true. If they had looked into it at all, they would have figured this out. As Palin's lawyers kept pointing out in the trial, you had all this other coverage in other outlets making clear that this is not, in fact, what had happened. Um, one of the things they said, well, some of it was in The Atlantic, and James Bennett, who was the editorial page editor at the Times, he used to be the editor of The Atlantic. So he must have known this because it was in The Atlantic. Now, of course, that's not true. The Atlantic publishes a lot of stuff. The editor doesn't read all of it. If he reads it, he doesn't necessarily remember it. But basically, you know, as a journalist, I look at that and say that, you know, James Bennett did a very bad thing here. Um, this was huge journalistic malpractice. I guess the question is that, that there should not be any legal consequence for that, even though it was, you know, it was a false statement that quite conceivably harmed Sarah Palin's reputation? Well, the state of the law is that Sarah Palin, since she's a public figure, has to prove actual malice. And you're right, that's a term that a lot of people trip over. This is a case where malice doesn't mean ill will. It means either knowledge that was false or reckless disregard as to its truth. And so what's reckless disregard? Reckless disregard means basically three people tell you, no, that's not true. And you say, screw that. I think it is. I'm doing it anyway. So it's basically proceeding in the face of evidence that you're aware of that it's false, even if you you personally don't know that it's false. And that's been the standard for defamation since the 60s, uh, since a crucial case called uh, Sullivan versus New York Times. And the idea is that when people are talking about public figures and public issues, we want to have the maximum amount of freedom and not have people liable for making mistakes, even stupid mistakes, as opposed to saying things that are deliberately false. Uh, So that's a, a choice, and it's a choice some people disagree with. So right now, there is a slowly gaining ground movement to reconsider Sullivan. And the idea is constitutionally that the Sullivan court more or less made up actual malice. Right. So I guess you say it's a choice to have that standard. Is it a choice? I mean, isn't isn't the conceit of Sullivan that it's actually required by the First Amendment? That's the conceit of Sullivan. The question is where they got it. It's not in the text 
of the First Amendment. They derived it from past cases, but it's perhaps not the most solid footing that you've ever seen in a constitutional case about something. And some people have suggested, well, they more or less made this up. This idea that a politician or public figure couldn't sue for a negligent mistake is not dictated by the Constitution. I would have characterized that movement as marginal and not really any threat as recently as five years ago. Now I think it is still definitely a minority movement, uh, but it is gaining ground. I would say there are probably two of the nine Supreme Court justices who buy into it, maybe three. I don't think you're going to see Sullivan overturned soon, but I see that as an agenda item for the Federalist Society and the right for um, coming years and not implausibly something that could happen within the next generation. I think it's a dumb idea for them. But... Wait, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Is it your view that the court basically made up the actual malice standard and it's not required by the Constitution and yet they shouldn't overturn Sullivan? Well, I think that the way they got there is a little cloudy. So remember, there was one segment of the Supreme Court, uh, the absolutist segment, who thought that I don't care if defamation has always been a thing. The First Amendment says what it says. We shouldn't allow defamation law at all. That's like Justice Black, and that's the First Amendment absolutist school, of which there's hardly anyone existing anymore. The school represented by Sullivan is that we have to balance the First Amendment and the extreme value we place on speech on matters of public interest and public importance with this traditional defamation law, and this is the way we get there. So... That is not the only way that could have come out, and I don't think that that result was mandated. So my answer is, I think that as a policy choice, it's the best. I think that as a interpretation of what the First Amendment requires and how to harmonize it with defamation law, it is plausible, but I don't think it's absolutely mandated. But the the court is not supposed to be making policy choices here, right? I mean, the, the court is supposed to be figuring out what the Constitution says, what sorts of torts you could have in a world where we have a First Amendment that protects a right to freedom of speech. And so I guess you, you can point to, you know, well, if they overturn Sullivan, that will have all sorts of negative effects in that it will, you know, you'll have a less vibrant press and people will be more afraid to say things. I'm not sure that that's relevant except to the extent that that then shows that the other regime violates the First Amendment. And so I, I guess then the the broader question is, it's easy to conceive of tort law regimes that would run afoul of the First Amendment, right? Like if, right. It was, if, it, if you could sue someone for saying anything that made you feel bad, that would be a law that restricted the freedom of speech in such a way that I think the courts would have to say that violates the First Amendment. But so the thing I don't understand is where you can then find a line, assuming that Justice Black is wrong and, and that it is possible to commit a tort by saying something at any time to someone, then how do we decide whether any of these standards is, are correct? I mean, presumably you have to land on something. There have to be certain legal regimes that you allow and others that you prohibit. Is, is there any way to come up with a clean line? Well, you're asking basically whether there is a neutral, principled, bright line answer out of the First Amendment. And the answer to that is not in the text of the First Amendment. And the question is, at what point does the body of constitutional law created by the United States Supreme Court become itself a neutral, legitimate basis to do things. So we're now where Sullivan has been the law for 
more than 50 years. And sooner or later, it, it gets its own weight. So this is stare decisis. It's stare decisis in part. It's also, I think, very culturally ingrained stare decisis. But there's one important thing to point out, and that's that it's not the only way to achieve this result. So many states, including New York, have the actual Maoist rule as a matter of state law. So this, even if there weren't Sullivan, would have had the same rule as a matter of New York state law. It's what I'm informed uh, by New York practitioners. And that's one reason, by the way, that this wouldn't be a vehicle to overturn Sullivan, the Palin case, because it would be irrelevant because it would still be the same result under New York law. So it's possible to protect free speech values in, in different ways. And this particular rule about actual malice is uh, one that is often protected by state law. That said, the trend that you talked about at the top there, where we're seeing more and more defamation cases brought by politicians, I think is an illustration of why it's dangerous to relax the protection. One of the reasons that politicians aren't overwhelmingly successful in destroying people with these politically motivated defamation cases is that often they are dismissed or often uh, they are gotten rid of at the summary judgment stage because of the difficulty of proving actual malice. If you make this into something where uh, it's just a question of negligence, then you're really incentivizing almost constant warfare over defamation cases and things like that as politics by other means. There was a, a really odd aspect of this case, which was that they had the trial, it went to the jury, the jury was deliberating, and then while the jury was deliberating, uh, Judge Jed Rakoff comes out into the courtroom and announces that if the jury finds that the Times was liable, he's going to set the verdict aside as a matter of law, uh, that basically because of this actual malice issue, they had not demonstrated, even if the as a matter of law, they, Sarah Palin could not win. Uh, and he announced this again, as I say, as the jury was deliberating and the jury had been told not to read the news. And my what, what I understand is the jury was being pretty good about that. But because this was big news, there was a push alert put out by one or more publications. And some of the jurors picked up their phones and their phones had like forcibly told them what had happened in the case they were trying to avoid the news about. So I guess, first of all, why would Judge Rakoff make that announcement then? Why not wait until the jury comes back? Doesn't that seem like the right order? Like, why would you announce what you're going to do about something that, that the jury hasn't even done yet? It's kind of inexplicable. Judge Rakoff is super experienced and super smart, very well respected on all sides of the political and legal spectrum. And just no one can figure out why he did it this way. Normally, you're right. When someone makes the motion for that judgment, you with you reserve it until the jury comes back. And then if you need to contradict the jury, you do. Or if you need to simply say, well, I would have found the same way. But then you don't have any sort of impact on the process. Why he would have done it this way, which risked this result, even under the most charitable understanding of how the way jurors actually work, is just inexplicable. And his order afterwards discussing it is somewhat defensive um, <laughs> and points out rather defensively, hey, when I proposed just announcing this, no one objected. So no harm, no foul. So, Which is probably legally correct that since Palin's team didn't object to him releasing the ruling that they're going to have trouble attacking this on appeal. 
But yeah, this is just an own own goal by the judge and and everyone makes mistakes, including federal judges. Does this you say that because the Palin team failed to object that they they don't really have any appeal grounds here? If, If they had objected, would this be grounds for appeal? It might be, although not good grounds. So the judge uh, conducted an inquiry. The jurors said it didn't influence the way they decided. Uh, So he decided no harm, no foul. And so that's very hard to overturn on appeal. It's something that would absolutely infuriate you as a litigator. But I actually think that given how the jury deliberated and, and how they came out, it probably didn't have an impact the evidence went in pretty smoothly and it went in pretty one-sided. So this really wound up being a trial that I was an exposition of sort of a certain amount of, of hubris by the New York Times and basically putting into uh, a staff editorial like a Twitter meme, uh, an idea that was popular on the far unreflective left but wasn't actually based <laughs> in truth. So they got a lot of egg on their face. But in terms of the proof of whether they knew at the time it was false or deliberately looked aside from evidence that it was false, it all went the other way. I mentioned earlier that there are three women who sued Donald Trump uh, for denying their claims of sexual misconduct, saying that he accused them of lying when he said that uh, that uh, he had not groped uh, some reservos, the former Apprentice contestant. Or I guess in in uh, Stormy Daniels' case, it was not directly about her claim of of sexual misconduct. It was a claim that someone had uh, was trying to intimidate her out of announcing that she had had an affair uh, with Donald Trump. And then you have E. Jean Carroll, uh, who accuses the president of having raped her at a department store in the 1990s. Um, she's also brought a suit against him uh, claiming defamation here. And so th- in two cases, these these claims did not work out so well from the, for the women who brought them. Stormy Daniels ended up uh, losing an anti-slap motion, um, basically that, that Donald Trump was engaged in commentary on a matter of public concern and that she was suing him, trying to stop him from talking about that. She got some bad legal advice from Michael Avenatti, who is not a good lawyer, um, and she ended up uh, owing a, a judgment of, of hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to President Trump. Uh, Summer Zervos, who was tied up in litigation for years, basically about whether the president could be forced to give a deposition, ended up dropping her lawsuit in, in a way that uh, was was kind of surprising to me, given how long she had worked to get there. And, and we talked uh, at the time on all the president's lawyers about how this was that she, she was vulnerable uh, to an anti-slap claim, sort of similarly, that the president, when he denied Groping her was making a statement on a matter of public concern and that she was vulnerable to, to losing a slap motion. Now you have Eugene Carroll, um, who has, you know, the, was it's the most serious claim uh, against President Trump in terms of, of, of his conduct. Uh, she has also been, you know, she had been delayed for a significant period while he was president. It's hard to bring a civil suit against a sitting president of the United States. So now there's been some motions in, in her litigation, and she does not have the same vulnerability on the slap matter uh, that the other two women who were suing Donald Trump did. And this, I, I guess it starts with a procedural matter. That basically the president didn't try to raise the slap claim soon enough. And the judge overseeing this case was basically like, you keep trying to delay this case. You had 14 months to bring this to try to bring this suit and you didn't. And therefore, you cannot bring an anti-slap claim against Eugene Carroll. That's correct. So recently, uh, this case has been all over the place. Recall that this is the one where uh, President Trump demanded that the attorney general come in and uh, substitute the United States as a defendant and represent him on the grounds that he was 
you know, acting in his official capacity. Right. Uh, when, when the president denied that uh, he had groped some reservos, he was he was only a candidate. Right. And so the, the U.S. government could not it could not plausibly be an official act when he said that Eugene Carroll was not his type and therefore he would not have attacked her. He was the sitting president of the United States. And there's this theory, not an insane theory. That like the scope of the president's official action is so broad that virtually anything the president says while he's sitting uh, is an action of the United States. And therefore, if you want to sue, you have to sue the United States. But, oh, you can't sue the United States for defamation anyway. So if, if so you the, lose. So you lose. Right. Um, it's not insane from a legal standpoint. It might be insane from a policy standpoint. Yes. But there's I mean, there's authority for the proposition that a public official responding to criticism that goes to their suitability for office is acting in their official capacity. So it is not an insane legal theory, however stomach turning it might be in this instance. The uh, Second Circuit is now looking at the appeal of this issue. The trial judge said, no, absolutely not. Second Circuit's looking at it. We'll see how that comes out. You might remember there was a lot of controversy and grumbling when the Biden administration came in on Trump's side, again, because I think of the institutional concerns of making it too easy. Right. It's the side of the presidency. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. It's the side of the institution and not of, of Donald Trump individually. But now New York has a uh, relatively new, extremely muscular anti-slap statute. That is a procedural vehicle to attack defamation claims, to get them thrown out, and even to sue someone for having brought one. And, and Donald- it's for if, if the defamation suit is really brought in order to discourage someone from, from commenting on a matter of public concern rather than, you know, genuinely because they have defamed you. Right. So normally it's tough to get a case thrown out. An anti-slap statute is a special procedural vehicle that makes it easier to get a meritless defamation claim thrown out. And in New York's case, gives you an affirmative cause of action to sue someone for having brought one. So here, Trump asked to amend, to add an anti-slap defense and an affirmative anti-slap cross-complaint. And this judge said, absolutely not. You've had 14 months to do this. You haven't. You've been delaying this case relentlessly every way you can. This is a really harsh opinion from this judge that really shows that he has not liked Trump's litigation tactics. So he says, absolutely not. And then he's got six or seven backup reasons. And among them are this question about whether or not state anti-slap statutes apply in federal court. That's a matter of controversy. Uh, I could explain it, but everyone would bleed out the ears by the time I was done. (laughs) And there's even a theory that what if anti-slap statutes somehow violate the First Amendment by impeding people's right to petition the government through defamation claims? I don't think that one's too serious, but it's a theory that's out there. So this was like a a loss on every possible argument and theory by Trump. And it means that Carroll can proceed without that sort of risk of the countervailing claim against her, where she's likely to have to pay a lot of money. So is is this something that might actually be likely to go to trial, unlike so many of these other civil claims against the former president? I mean, Carroll's attorney is Roberta Kaplan, who's a very high-powered attorney. She's the, the attorney who represented Edie Windsor in the, in the Windsor v. U.S. Uh, uh, gay marriage case. And she doesn't have this this huge problem that a lot of other similarly positioned litigants might have. I mean, because it seems like this is exactly the sort of situation that an anti-slap law is written about, right? You have a public official who's accused of serious wrongdoing, who goes out there and denies the wrongdoing and then faces a lawsuit about that. I mean, this isn't this exactly the sort of speech, gross as it was, what Donald Trump said? This is exactly the sort of speech that these laws are intended to protect for, you know, public officials to be able to say, you know, I didn't commit that crime. 
And so now that you, because the president in his overly clever litigation strategy where he tried to delay things out by waiting too long to make these claims, it seems like he's not going to have that protection. Um, but it seems like the law was sort of written with cases like this in mind. Yeah, very much so. And I think it would have been a very plausible anti-slap motion and counterclaim if it had been brought as soon as they were able to bring it. I mean, the whole concept of suing people for saying, no, I didn't, is kind of problematical. Uh, it's become increasingly popular, not only against Trump, but against people like Bill Cosby and his lawyers and things like that. I'm not sure it's overall positive development. It seems more like a way to vindicate other interests, like the underlying sexual assaults through the mechanism of, of this lawsuit. But yeah, this is because it's not sincerely Trump trying to vindicate his free speech rights. He's just fighting every way he can. And to get back to your question, yes, it could go to trial. I don't think that it's clear how the Second Circuit Court of Appeals is going to come out on the issue of whether or not um, the uh, United States can step in for Trump and therefore end the case. And I think it's entirely plausible that whichever way it comes out, it goes to the United States Supreme Court, which will be an interesting discussion, Josh, in a while when we get there. Uh, but yeah, I could see this going to trial, but probably not for years. And so if, the, if this goes to trial... You're basically asking a civil jury to find by the preponderance of the evidence whether or not Donald Trump raped E. Jean Carroll, right? You are. And so that's how, do, how does a jury consider a question like that about an event that by then would presumably be 30 years prior? Well, how, do, how does a jury decide anything? I mean, uh, trials are about people walking in and talking about what happened or didn't happen. What you're kind of alluding to is what sometimes is called the CSI effect, which is that Americans have started to have this expectation that trials will involve DNA evidence or scientifically certain evidence or things like that. But the truth is that the vast majority of cases in America that go to trial hinge at one point or another on one person saying this happened and the other person saying, no, it didn't, or saying there's not enough evidence that it did. You shouldn't believe them. Right. But usually when you're talking about a criminal act like a rape, you're talking about a criminal trial where you have to prove beyond sure. a reasonable doubt that the bad act happened. Here, it's a civil case. It's a significantly lower standard of proof. And so presumably, I mean, you know, there's a reason we have statutes of limitations for, for criminal offenses. Right. Um, a lot of you know, the the things that you would point to about, you know, well, you, you, you didn't really prove this. You didn't really prove this. That's very different in a civil trial context, right? What E. Jean Carroll has to show is presumably it's a much lower showing than, than what a prosecutor would have to show in a criminal trial. Is it common to have a civil litigation about a matter that is so far in, in the past and so uh, the evidence so limited to the testimony of two people on either side of the dispute? It seems it seems like it's just a, a really difficult question for a jury to try to decide that it has information about. Well, because of the way civil litigation works, uh, Josh, it's not uncommon for the events you're talking about to be significantly older than they would be in a criminal case. So a lot of the time, uh, you know, uh, one of the last civil trials I did, we were arguing about what people said to each other and entering into a contract 10 years before the trial. So uh, that's just the way they play out. And yes, uh, often there's lots of documents and, uh, you know, things like that. But ultimately, it comes down to people, who do you believe about who said what to whom, who disclosed what, uh, that type of thing for things that happened years before. 
And that's a reason these cases typically settle, right? Yes. Uh, the vast majority of cases settle. I think this falls into the category of ones you wouldn't necessarily expect to because they're being conducted as politics by other means. Well, and because people are not principally interested in the financial outcome of the trial here. Correct. I'm, I'm sure they care about the financial outcome of the trial, but E. Jean Carroll wants to be vindicated on her accusation that the former president raped her. Right. Um, and so that's that's something you can much more easily get from a trial than from a settlement. Right. There is so much more to talk about, but I think that's a good place to leave it. Ken, thanks for speaking with me, and uh, I think we'll be talking more again pretty soon. I am looking forward to it, Josh. Thank you. If you'd like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me and special access to our thoughtful, very serious community. Please consider supporting the Very Serious Podcast and the newsletter as a paying subscriber to the newsletter on Substack. Your subscription directly funds the newsletter and this podcast. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo as in mayonnaise. I'm watching the look on Ken's face as I say the word mayonnaise. Ken, do you like mayonnaise? Uh, Everyone likes mayonnaise. It's going to be like this, isn't it? <laughs> Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Thanks to Kaylee Wells for recording assistance. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week. 